Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Fall TV Preview Edition. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. This is the last of our fall TV preview episodes because next week we are diving into our full sort of series long watch of Amazon's The Romanoffs. But we thought we would make one more stop before we got back to that, uh, our usual MO, and we are going to The Good Place or The we Bad are. Place. Well, or- <laughs> I guess now we're, we're out of both bad and good places. We're just in place. We're just here on Earth. Uh, yeah, we are going to be talking about season three of, or, you know, seasons one through three so far of NBC's sitcom, The Good Place. This is from, uh, you know, uh, creator Michael Schur, the great mind of Michael Schur. Michael Schur is the guy behind Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Recreation and also, you know, some of your favorite stuff on The Office. So he is like, you know, one of my favorite like kind of feel good, but smart uh, TV creators. And we also have a nice long conversation with Michael Schur that will run at the end of this episode. Uh, but first, Richard and I just wanted to sort of talk about this heartwarming show. This podcast episode will spoil everything up through season three, episode two, The Brainy Bunch, which aired on Thursday, October 4th, and guest starred Adam Scott as the demon Trevor. But Richard, first, I just wanted to like kick off by asking you, this was an interesting show in that I think when it launched, not everyone was on board with it right away. And then, of course, there was like the big season one ending twist that a lot of TV writers were sort of exclaiming over. And I think that prompted a bunch of people to watch it. And then, you know, it dropped on Netflix and people caught up and it sort of the ratings aren't still aren't like extraordinary. But, you know, like Ted Dancing got an Emmy nomination, like it has become like much more zeitgeisty and grown. And so I guess my question to you is like, how much of a snobby good place hipster are you? Like, when did you start watching the show? Oh, I am by no means a good, uh, snobby, good place hipster. <laughs> um, I watched, I think the first two episodes was like, eh, okay, I get it. And then, you know, walked away from it. And then when the finale happened and I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I actually confession, I did not go back and watch the rest of the first season. I just picked up with season two and watched that in full and, and really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. and really enjoyed these first three episodes of the third season. I think that for me, um, I, 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 I feel like there's something deficient in me that like, I got sick of Parks and Rec, that the kind of sunshiny vibe that you were talking mm-hmm. about, like, and I think that the culture surrounding it with all the Ron Swanson memes and all this stuff yeah. and treat, treat yourself and all that, I just kind of got like, like, I found it cloying. Uh-huh. And I think the good place risks that at times, but 
so far has fallen short of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I um there's something interesting about a Michael Schur show and 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 what's fun, uh, you know, he's had various collaborators on his show, but it's fun to have this much of a body of work from one creator uh, and his collaborators to see sort of the common threads. And what's been true for me of all Michael Schur shows, um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, and Parks and Recreation is that the first season, or at least most of the first season of all of those shows, like hasn't really worked super well for me. And I feel like they get warmed up and then they figure out what the show really should be. Yeah. That's not, I mean, that's not quite the case with, with the good place season one. I think when you go back and rewatch season one of the good place, knowing the twist, it's much more enjoyable television. I still, I still enjoyed it the first time, but like, I really dug it the second time I watched season one, but like, I don't know if you like remember season one of parks and recreation, but like Leslie Nope was much more of like a, um, I don't know, like an overreaching Michael Scott sort of figure. And in season one of Brooklyn Nine Nine, Andy Samberg was much more of like an antic frat boy thing than like the better character that he like settled into. So I just, I feel like, you know, they take some time to pick up steam. I, I am so grateful that we live in a world, you know, a world of quick cancellation, but Michael Schur is enough of a figure that he gets like the chance to sort of ramp up to something. So, um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think that's certainly true. The first season of Parks and Rec felt, you know, like a, she was a little too Tracy Flick meets Michael Scott, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a Brooklyn Nine Nine is a show that I probably should go back and revisit because I was sort of put off by it its first few episodes of season one and, um, and so kind of steered clear of, but like, I'm glad that the press and the fan chatter for the good place was strong enough that, um, and the premise is interesting enough that like it brought me in because I think that like that second season is really like, it's laugh out loud funny, but it's also just like, it's so clever and in the way that it's structured and like someone who's thinking that much about a sitcom but not telegraphing all that thought like someone in community did, um, I think is really, really rare. You know, it's, what's interesting is that, um, something that, do you, do you watch The Magicians on Sci-Fi? I've seen some of it, but I, I'm not a regular watcher, no. Something I really love about that show is that they like, they break all the rules, the storytelling, you know, they just use like yada, yada, yada magic to break all the storytelling rules um, of TV, but they're so aware of it. And so like meta, but not cutesy about it, that it doesn't bother me the way it would another show where I'm like, ugh, you're just cheating to like reset characters and stuff like that. Um, the good place does a similar thing where they can hit the reset button on this story, like anytime they want. But what do you think of this season three reset where they're sent to earth? They're given the second chance to, to live and, and become better people. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that the show with each, you know, kind of, subsequent paradigm shift essentially like it risks quantum leaping into something that really doesn't work you know or that sort of becomes relies too heavily on its own conceits um i don't think that this 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 season three shift does that i think that like it's fun seeing these people back in the real world interacting anew you know like obviously they're kind of arriving at a similar social dynamic to what they had in the bad place and you know uh whatnot but um i'm I'm still invested enough in in those dynamics that it's fine to watch them play it's actually fun to watch them played out again and i think the show does a good job of incorporating darcy carden and ted danson Right. Uh, in, into the mix without it feeling too like, oh, that's kind of a leap. You know, that, that doesn't really, I mean, not that there's really much credibility to strain here. It's about, you know, the afterlife, but, right. but still, I think I, I like what, how they've, what decisions they made. Yeah, I think Michael Scher has described himself elsewhere as sort of like a continuity nerd. And I really feel like I see that in this where like, uh, you know, whatever rules he set for himself, he's going to tie that up in a way that just like makes the whole thing work. Uh, whereas I think if someone just didn't, you know, like, mm, sometimes I'm, I, I couldn't choose to not name names, so I'm going to name names. Sometimes, uh, in the recent season of Game of Thrones, like, a director or a writer or creator will be like, oh yeah, it doesn't make sense, but come on, who really cares? And I'm like, I care! <laughs> oh my god, I care! <laughs> but, okay, so I wanted to ask you about the very most important line of episode three. Okay. Which is when Maya Rudolph 
talks about your circus oh musical <laughs> making a ton of money. How did you feel like getting that personal shout out to you, Richard Lawson, by, by the great Molly Rudolph, uh, who's so excellent <laughs> on the show, won an Emmy for it, I believe. Um, yeah, it was great. I mean, it's so funny because like. It's, it's, it's a joke that's like so up my alley, like about me. So the joke was, you know, if people don't remember or haven't seen it or are still listening to this for some reason, um, uh, she's talking about how the, Ted Danson's meddling in the world, Michael's meddling in the world has made the world a stranger place. And she's like, the PT Barney musical starring Hugh Jackman made $400 billion. <laughs> and that's literally <laughs> something I've tweeted. Like, it's just been like, Hey, by the way, that's greatest showman made $400 million. Um, <laughs> I just think that's, I think it's so funny. And, uh, and then, and a nice referential way to like reflect the kind of darkness of the world. Not that the, any, there's anything dark about the greatest showman doing well, but the conceit that like the world she's talking about is exactly ours, you know? Uh, yeah. and saying that like, oh, maybe it could just be like some supernatural thing we're not aware of that's like making this feel like the darkest timeline. Um, and I just feel like without itself kind of seeding over to like all of that despair and kind of um contemporary reference and all that it was just felt like a much more gentle way to kind of say to the viewer like yeah we know that like things are going on uh out in the real world and we're aware of it you know i i I like that kind of nod here's the bad version of that joke donald trump is president and you're like oh my god i like that the good place talks about sort of some of the like moral and philosophical ennui that we're all going through without making it like hammering us with topicality in that way. But but finding topicality in the like Hugh Jackman circus musical and also this weird thing about so like the 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 Jaguars joke, right? The joke is that um Manny Sinto's character like loves the Jaguars and that was like a running joke that it was just like a thing that they made up for his character and I I was listening they have the NBC has an official podcast for The Good Place and I was listening to it over the summer and like Manny Sinto one of the writers like went to a Jaguars game and like you know like like the whole Blake Bortles thing that that his character that Jason's obsessed with like that was just a joke because Blake Bortles was like a shit quarterback but now he is actually performing well so that's like a meta meta joke where they're like okay we made this quarterback kind of like a joke hero in our show and now he's actually like doing well and the Jaguars are doing well yeah. <laughs> like what's going on so. no exactly and and I feel like and they do it in a, a three you know a three beat kind of classic joke structure where they give three examples of what's weird about the world yeah. and in doing that you're like they don't need to mention Trump or anything they've already done it you know kind of obliquely and I think that that's perfect and um, I'm also looking I've, I was looking at Blake Bortles um, on Google, um, his nickname is Bortle Combat <laughs> with the K and everything. I did not know that. Yeah. That's amazing. So, <laughs> um, the other thing I like, I don't know, um, how deep you've got into this, but like the interesting thing about what Michael Schur, who's like an incredibly, he's very funny, but he's also very incredibly thoughtful and did like a lot of research into moral and ethical philosophy and like this season into psychology in order to put the show together. Um, he also talked a lot to Damon Lindelof, uh, about both Lost and The Leftovers because they were huge inspirations on this show, which like, it makes sense once you think about it for two seconds, but maybe isn't like the most natural connection you would make. But what I love about this season is like they're in Australia, which of course is both a lost and leftover season three thing. Um, and I'm just like, Oh my God, he's just doing the leftovers, but like funny and cute. It's so weird. Um, and uh, of course what it gives us the great like opportunity for is Ted Danson's terrible Australian accent, which like I wasn't sure they were going to acknowledge at first was terrible, and then they do. Um, all right, is there is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of the Good Place, any or like anything from season two that you're hoping they revisit in season three? I'll, I have mine. Um. Well, I just hope that they. I mean, I know that a cameo turning into a regular role can be annoying, but like. I like my Rudolph on it so much that I, I kind of, I mean, I guess they should use her sparingly, but I want to see more of her. Um, I love anything Jason Manzoukas does ever, but that is, oh, but yeah. his character of Derek is, um, probably best used sparingly. So I would like at least one or two 
Derek appearances this season, but not, not a full-time uh, role for Jason. Something else that's full-time for Jason, because I love him and wish him well, uh, Jason Menzoukas. But yeah. All right. Well, then this is the perfect opportunity for us to go uh, to our chat with the great Michael Scher. The Run Through with Vogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are... AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run-Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing so well. I wanted to start off by asking you something that I thought was really interesting last week when all the Kavanaugh hearings were going on. I saw a lot of people on Twitter say like, well, at least the good place is on tonight. And so I have that, <laughs> I have that going for me. And I know people felt similarly about parks. So I was just wondering like, what, what does it mean to you to be the show that is a bomb for people in this world? <laughs> A bomb, B A L M, not B O M B. Or, or like you're saying, dub bomb or B A L M. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, that's lovely. As I do this longer and longer, I start. I keep kind of recalibrating my view of sort of what um, what you can hope for if you make TV or movies or anything really that you put out into the culture. And um, you know, people have different motivations for doing this job or for writing or for acting or directing or whatever. But to me, the the motivation is is to make something that I think is good that connects with people in some way. That's just, it's it sort of has boiled down to that simple um, a goal. So I when when people like the show for any reason, it's nice uh, and it feels like I've achieved that goal. Um, there's a special extra feeling when the show seems to have for people a positive feeling, a connotation of like, this is a thing that will make me feel better if the rest of the world stinks. Right. Uh, because I, I'm a person who often feels like the rest of the world stinks. And so that's an extra special thing for me where if people feel like there's, um, yeah, Parks and Rec did have this and Brooklyn Nine-Nine has it to some extent too, of a feeling of like, if I've had a bad day for any reason, whether it's something that's happening in the country or in my own life, and this will help me be happier, then that's kind of as good as it gets, I think. Like, that's really the point of making comedy at some level is to just make people feel good and feel less alone in the world. I love that. And I mean, I don't know if you in your own home refer to it as the sure verse, but, you know, Parks Recreation, <laughs> Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the good place. Like, what what does it mean now that Brooklyn Nine-Nine is over on NBC? What does it mean to you to have the whole sure verse on one network? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I will say I've never referred to it that way. <laughs> the writers on The Good Place, uh, my who are many of whom are my now very close friends, do refer to it that way as a way of torturing me right, right. Uh, because they know it makes me feel weird and uncomfortable. Um, uh, you know, it, I actually kind of liked the idea that, um, that Brooklyn was on another network just for the simple reason that it felt the world right now um, of TV feels very, it can feel very corporate because there's a kind of renewed push for every network to kind of own its own shows and to only produce shows made by their own studios and, there's a lot of words being thrown around like vertical integration and stuff like that that make it that make the shows feel less and less um, about art, <laughs> you know, like at yeah. some level you want to feel like they're art. And um, and so it was kind of nice because when we pit, when Dan Gore and I pitched Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, the people running the and the Universal Studio at the time we're like, this feels like a Fox show. Like it feels like it's got this vibe and the cast, we, we were after people like Andy Samberg and it was like, this just feels like, I don't know. It feels like Fox. And so, and I liked the idea that there was this sense of like, well, look at, you know, 
that you can take a product and go to a place where it has the best chance of surviving. And for, you know, five years, Brooklyn had a really happy home there. And at the end of the day, because they didn't own the show, which means they were making less money from it than they would if they owned it, they had to, they didn't want to do it anymore. And then NBC, which does own it, you know, their studio owns it. They were like, well, we'll put it on. And so look, these things have a way of working out and, um, and it was nice. It's really nice that it's on NBC and it's, gets to survive because Dan Gore has done an amazing job and the cast is incredible and the writers are great and I'm happy that the show is surviving. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, it didn't feel like, ah, finally, like all of my shows are consolidated at one place. <laughs> like that, that was never really a consideration. Well, I was reading an interview you gave where you talked about how in season three of The Good Place, um, the idea of timelines and multiverses is something that you're interested in exploring uh in a sort of you were giving a kind of fun and coy like never say never kind of answer so should we never say never then to a ron swanson or gina Lennon cameo <laughs> i'm always very loath to say to say in the middle of something that something will never happen i think in the past there have been people who've been tempted to say that I know when I talked to Damon Lindelof about Lost, that was one of the things he said at the beginning of Lost was they were like, this is not the, they were, they came out and were like, this isn't the situation. Right. But it's like, it wasn't not the situation. And also at the time in season one, like they didn't know what the situation was because they had to write 120 episodes. So it feels like a bad idea to ever cut anything off. Um, it's not something that we've like talked about a lot. We put little Easter eggs from, other sure. shows I've worked on into the show just kind of for fun. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, sure. Never say never. Good sure. idea. Never say never. Why not? <laughs> well, I think you've said that Damon also told you to pick a point and aim at it or at least have a direction forward. I know you've always talked about like being kind of almost a season ahead as you're planning this thing. How far ahead does it go? Do you have the end game of this show in mind, even if you are willing to throw it in the garbage, if you decide something else feels better? Yes, we have a we have as a group sort of come to a belief about what the point of the show will be and what the message will be and how to execute that message and we're still moving very much through season 3 we're moving in the same in that same direction of that kind of end game. Um and I've said this before but I like to not commit to it too early because I don't want to miss a better idea. Like there have been many times in my life that I have had a very, that I've felt very sure of myself in a certain aspect of a story in terms of how it should be told or what it should be. And then something has happened, usually a smart writer saying, what about this instead? And your, um, your instinct is to go like, no, I was right. <laughs> my version's good. <laughs> your version isn't as good as my version. And it's just ego and, and kind of like, um, you know, it's just like, per, it's just personality quirk and ego that gets in the way of making something better. And so I try all the time to like, I press people like tear this up, throw this away, like find something better, beat this, like, let's beat this idea. Let's beat this joke. Let's beat this story. Let's beat this character. Like let's find something that's better than what we have. And you have, it's exhausting work because when you come up with an idea that you really like, the temptation is to just shut your brain off and say like, all right, that's the idea. We know that's good and we like it. Um, but you know, there's an episode of parks and recreation. I think about this all the time. There's an episode of parks and recreation we did where Ron Swanson, uh, was, had built a chair and the chair had been entered in a contest and he, for like a woodworking contest. And he ended up winning an award for his chair. And it was just a delightful Ron Swanson story. There's a lot of other stuff going on too. His ex-wife was involved and his current girlfriend played by Lucy Lawless was involved and Leslie was involved. And it was a big giant story, but the setting was this woodworking competition. And we got like a thousand great fun jokes out of this woodworking competition. And we almost didn't do that story because the original story was going to be set at a Swanson family reunion. We had pitched that there was a Swanson family reunion. And I was like, Oh my God, that's incredible. What a, what a great idea. Like, a million Swansons running around like male Swansons and female Swansons and <laughs> older generation Swansons and younger generation Swansons. Like I can picture that in my head. That's going to be so great. And I was so excited about that idea. And then 
something happened where I think they were doing a similar story on the office with Dwight's family and Dwight and Ron did have certain overlapping traits. And the episode of the office was going to air before the episode of parks and rec. And I was really bummed out because it was, and they were going to air like within a week of each other or something. And it just kind of felt like, well, shoot, we can't do that. And I was really bummed out, but then we stumbled into this woodworking idea and it was better. It was like a more interesting idea. It was a better way to show aspects of Ron's personality. And it was just like that lesson yet again was taught to me, which was there's a better idea there, or there's an idea that's as good. And you can't be too precious about sticking to your original ideas because if you do, you might miss one that's better. I love that. Um, you've, you've talked about, um, or no, actually, um, I've listened to your, your actors talk about how your desk as you're preparing to do the good place in the first place was sort of stacked deep with, ethical philosophy books and that you just sort of like went all in on the, on the homework assignments for yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I know that you guys have, or were, you know, dipping into psychology a bit more for this season. Do you assign summer reading to your writers and or actors? <laughs> and if so, like how much? <laughs> uh, no, but I love the idea of that. Like okay. that sounds, <laughs> I should have been doing that all along. Um, no, I, so I love homework. I've always loved homework. I, uh, I did all my homework as a student and, um, I really enjoy that. Like my ideal vacation is going to a city or a place I've never been before and walking around with a tour guide who just fills my ear with facts about the city. Like my wife and I went to Bruges, which is this weird Belgian city. It's sort of like Venice, you know, with it's like on a bunch of canals. And we walked around for four hours and this delightful older Belgian woman walked next to us and she loved Bruges more than anything. She had lived, grown up there and lived (laughs) there. And she just rattled off fact after fact, after fact, after anecdote about Bruges. And I could have, I could have like moved into her home and, and and had her (laughs) and become her best friend and had her talk to me forever about Bruges because I just find it fascinating. So yeah, I did a, I've did and continue to do a ton of reading about the subjects that we're trying to explore in the show. I don't understand most of it. It's incredibly dense. It's very difficult to get through. I'm not trained in that aspect of scholarship. And so I don't, it doesn't come naturally to me, but I keep reading it just because I like it. And I will from time to time send a a chunk of text or like a, a reference or something to the rest of the writing staff. And I'll say like, I just read this. I think it's really interesting. And and from time to time, other writers on their own will have read things and they will send those things to me and say, like, I just listened to this podcast or I heard this, I read this cool thing and this article in the Atlantic about what is some aspect of moral philosophy or psychology or whatever. Um, so, yeah, we're, we are as a group constantly kind of sharing things with each other. The way that we found one of our academic advisors, Todd May, was a writer named Dan Schofield had researched the he thought it would be interesting because we had a character, Michael who is, you know, some kind of otherworldly being who is ostensibly immortal. And he sort of thought to himself on his own, what happens to the concept of ethical behavior if you're immortal, right? Like if you live forever, right. what, is it, what difference does it make whether you're like a good or bad immortal being? And he found this book called Death by Todd May, um, a philosopher at Clemson, who was writing on that exact subject and then we all read that book and then we're like, oh, this is exactly what we need. This is exactly this is right in our sweet spot of trying to untangle the, because we knew at that point, the season two was going to be about Michael trying to be a, going from like an immortal demon to like a, an honorary human. So it was like, well, how do we do that? How do you get an immortal being to learn to care about ethics? And so there is a lot of reading that goes on and a lot of research that goes on by the writing staff just on their own. And um, and then we all kind of will share stuff, but no, I don't, I don't like assign reading <laughs> because that, that that seems cruel at some level because I don't understand much of it and I, I I wouldn't try to force anybody else to understand it too. Well, on the, on that note, can you force uh, anyone listening to understand right now what the Milgram experiment is? <laughs> yeah. So the Milgram experiments are a famous group of experiments, psychological experiments by a, a man named Stanley Milgram in the fifties or sixties. I can't remember now. And basically what he did is he brought people into a room and he was wearing a white lab coat and he taught at Yale. And so he was a very authoritarian figure. He seemed like a scientist who knew what he was doing from Yale university. And he had set up an apparatus in which uh, the, uh, the test subject would ask 
an ostensible person in another room uh, a series of questions. And when the people got the questions wrong, they were supposed to shock the people with a little electric shock. And the shock started at a low voltage and they sort of slowly went up. Now, of course, what they didn't know is that the, there were no people in the other room. It was a series of recorded messages who were deliberately going to get the questions wrong. And the point was to see how willing humans are to shocking other people or to harming other people when they are directed to by a scientist wearing a white lab coat at Yale, right? So what he showed was that people, many of the people were extremely willing to shock people, even when the voltages got uh, up into a seemingly dangerous level. And even when the recorded messages were saying things like, please stop, don't do this. I'm, oh this is hurting me. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of interesting writings and research about the Milgram experiments. A lot of people thought it was bad science. A lot of people thought it was done in bad faith, that it wasn't morally permissible to do it, um, that, that it was uh, awful and, and, and uh, just bad all around. Milgram responded to those criticisms by saying, you only don't like this because of what it showed about human beings' willingness to like obey authority. You know, it obviously had huge implications. World War II wasn't that far in the past. There were huge sort of Nazi, I was just following orders type um, things that, that were associated with it. We, this season, for, for the, in season three, we get more into neuroscience and psychology in part because Chidi has met this woman named Simone, uh, played by Kirby Paul-Baptiste, who is a neuroscientist and a researcher who kind of presents a different take on Chidi's indecision and on all of the sort of foibles that the four main characters show. Um, and so we, yeah, we did a lot of reading about the Milgram experiments and the Stanford prison experiment, which has kind of been debunked now. Um, and it was like, oh my God, there's a whole other show here. That, that was the sort of feeling I had was there's an entirely different show we could have been doing from season one on that is really focused more on human psychology than on ethics. And now I kind of want to, I want to like end this show and then start over and just do the same <laughs> show, but from a different, <laughs> from a different, starting from a different academic discipline. Well, you know, would you then advise Good Place viewers to be wary of figures of authority that they see on the show, people with lab coats or clipboards or <laughs> judges? Wrote well, uh, you mean like don't trust people in uh, who are, who appear to be authority figures? Possibly. On the show, you mean? Possibly. Yeah, I I would say in general, I think a healthy amount of skepticism in general, whether you're looking at fictional characters or real-life humans, a healthy dose of skepticism about people's motives is probably warranted in every situation like that. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm an extreme rule follower, and I part of what makes reading about things like the Milgram experiments interesting to me is I wonder whether what would have won my extreme rule following right. or my kind of general moral sense that it's bad to hurt people. Like I, I, I would have been a perfect test subject for the Milgram <laughs> experiments because I am a speed limit driver in, uh, in all facets of my life. So yeah, I, I, now I would like to think that if I were told, if I were doing that experiment and I had the feeling that I were, that I was being asked to harm someone else, I would like to think that my moral center would overcome my obedience to authority, but I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't. And on the show, I think, yes, certainly in terms of the characters who appear to be uh, moral authority figures, I think what we're trying to say at some level is no one really has all the answers and that there's always another side to the story, whatever the story is. Okay. Speaking of that, I, I do want to go back to Simone, uh, the Simone character, because, um, I, okay. So whenever you have a sort of will they, won't they on a TV show, which you are, <laughs> you are an expert at, um, with sort of the Leslie and Ben and uh, of it all, but, you know, oftentimes TV writers will introduce a third person <laughs> that, you know, is mm -hmm. there to shake things up. And usually, sure. I hate that person, even if I'm, even if the writer tries so hard to get me to, even if it's Rashida Jones playing that character, I like can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't get on board. But Kirby Howell Batiste, like you did something so smart with this. Like not only is she an enormously appealing actress, um, you know, the Simone character is, is so lovely, but you know, you've got Eleanor on the side, at least in the premiere of, of Chidi and Simone, like shipping them. And so I was just wondering, 
wondering, like, if you could talk about how you introduced this particular wrench and, and the various ideas you had for it. Sure. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, she has a lot of things going for her as a character. Number one, Kirby is just endlessly talented and charming. And that like, when we, as soon as she auditioned for this part, we were like, yes, there's no one else in the world who can do this or should do it. Um, but the, it, from a, from a beginning standpoint, a lot that this has a lot of things going for it, right? The normal playbook of there's two people who are in love and they they have a complicated, will they, won't they, blah, blah, blah. And then a third person enters, whether it's another man or another woman, like it's usually just a delay tactic. It's just like, try to create intrigue and have use like the, the normal human foibles and failings of jealousy and fear and anger kind of get in the way of an otherwise healthy relationship in which is boring and it's boring and audiences are bored by it. And I don't think it works anymore. Um, in most cases, in this case, Chidi and Simone met before Chidi ever had any idea who Eleanor was. They had their own relationship. They had their own friendship. They had their own academic overlap. They had their own set of experiences completely in the dark. So it's not what you would think of as a normal love triangle. Eleanor shows up and she's obviously Kristen Bell is an attractive woman who had, who is funny and charming and interesting, but that's also the way they met was completely different from the way they were meeting in the afterlife In the afterlife, a demon was saying, this is your soulmate right over and over again. Or like they were in at the very least they were meeting like in ostensible heaven, but now they're just meeting where she's come to him and said, can you help your teacher? Can you teach me something? So that starts off at a different level. And then also Eleanor is feeling very grateful to him because he's done this kind of crazy thing. She knocked on his door out of nowhere and started helping her and, so when he sees her, I'm sorry, when she sees him, obviously into Simone and vice versa, Eleanor is like, well, this is how I pay him back. I like, he has a problem with like being active in his life and I don't. And so I'm going to throw these two together and she does a good job of it. And it's, it's sort of hints at this larger thing that we've done, which I really think was fun for us as a writing staff, which is we were like, all right, we're resetting the 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 dials again and we're going back down to earth and that means that all of these people are going to meet under entirely new circumstances so for example eleanor and tahani um every time they've met before this they've been in the afterlife and eleanor has been coming at it from a place of fear and and jealousy and i know i'm not good enough for this place and here's tahani who's you know 100 feet tall and has a (laughs) a perfect Oxford English accent and is effortlessly glamorous and graceful. And Eleanor has a real bugaboo about people who think about people who think they're better than she is. And so Eleanor is going to hate Tahani every single time, no matter what, but now they're on earth and they're just two people who showed up in a weird academics office in Australia with this kind of a little bit lost and a little bit feeling like they want to become better people. So from the very beginning, we were like, these two are just friends. Like Eleanor is going to still find her is going to like do a little eye rolling about her name dropping and about her effortlessly glamorous life. But, uh, but they're going to be friends. Tahani's going to be nice to Eleanor and Eleanor is going to be nice to Tahani. And there's no reason why they should carry over the same exact relationship from previous incarnations because they're not in the same situation. And so we just really went back to the drawing board with how all of these people are meeting. And we thought a lot about, um, I personally hate more than anything, stories in which women fight over men. Right. I think it's the most, the single most retrogressive, anti-feminist, and frankly boring trope in the history of television. And so we were very careful to design a scenario with Eleanor and Simone where the point was never, not once, not for one second, jealousy or how dare you, that's my man, or any of that boring old crap that people have been doing in a very sort of like reductive way for decades. And so it, uh, those are all of the factors that are, it's a new world that they've never met each other before. Simone and Chidi had their own thing before Eleanor showed up. Eleanor has completely different motivations. Simone and out, El- there's no reason Simone and Eleanor shouldn't be friends. There's no reason Eleanor and Tahani shouldn't be friends. Like we, we just sort of like wiped the slate clean with all that stuff. And as a result, I think we are telling more interesting stories than we would have been if we had just kept everything going the same way. Something else that you do um, that I really admire is the way in which you put um, romances in your shows that are based so believably in friendship where you're like, even if these two people were not in love, they would be friends um, no matter what. And um, 
I don't know. It's just something that, that I find rare. I think this, um, instinct to gin up drama by always having like people fighting or people breaking up or whatever is something that you've really, uh, convincingly avoided. And I'm just wondering where that, like, I like you and I love you approach to, um, you know, love on your show comes from. Is this like, you know, something from your life? Is this a lesson you learn from Pam and Jim from, you know, Don and Tim? Like where, where does this come from for you? Well, uh, it comes from a lot of different places. Part of it's real life. That's my relationship with my wife. I would say is that I, I love her and I like her. I mean, that line, by the way, Amy wrote that line in that episode of Parks and Rec. That's, that was Amy. She took it actually from Quincy Jones, um, <laughs> weirdly. But, um, but yeah, that, that was Amy. Amy is the one who kind of nailed that so in such a perfect, like, crystal clear way. That, that to me is the essence of a good relationship is you can love people and the relationship will be a disaster. You can like people, but you're not sort of like meant to be together forever in order to have like a, a truly like wonderful, deep, rich relationship, friendship, or whatever it is, you have to both love and like people. It really is true. And so um, I think it's just, and, and also, by the way, I would say that, you know, that, that was the formula for Leslie and Ben on Parks and Recreation. Absolutely. I think it's probably the formula, even though it's never been totally articulated for, for Jake and Amy on Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's exactly the formula for currently for like Eleanor and Chidi, like their relationship is specific and weird. And obviously it's mostly taken place, like not on earth. Like it, I think you kind of have to treat all of these things as individual relationships. Like each, every relationship on every TV show is a little bit different. And the actors playing the characters are a little different and the way that they kind of have a chemistry or or the way that they feel about each other when they're together on screen, that's a little different. So I think the where TV has fallen into ruts with these things in the past is like r- trying to run the same playbook, like trying to run Sam and Diane with two other people who aren't Shelley Long and Ted Danson. It's just right. not going to work. It's, yeah. So I, I feel like the approach, my, at least the attempt on my part and on the part of the writers on every staff I've ever worked on, whether I'm running the show or just a staff writer on the show has been, all right, well, who are these people? What are the circumstances under which they met? How do they interact? Where are they from? Where are they going? What are their life circumstances? Like Jim and Pam, you can't take Jim and Pam and just apply it to someone else, to other, to other people. It just doesn't work. Like that show had a very specific tone and a vibe and an, it was a mockumentary and there was glances at cameras and there were spy shots where you were poking through the, the leaves of trees and stuff and catching these little tiny moments, these little gossamer threads of spider web of relationships. So you can't just say like, Oh, it's like a Jim and Pam thing and then throw it at two two other people on some other show. It'll just seem insane. Like you have to start from the point of view of who the characters are and what their situation is and then kind of build it up organically after that, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, on that note there, there's, there are certain, I don't know, rules of these various, um, you know, shows that you're talking about, like a, a Brooklyn plot doesn't work and the office and the parks plot, blah, vice versa. One of the incredible benefits you have of the premise of the good place is that you can just sort of, um, shake the edge of sketch and start over on certain things, uh, you know, which must be incredibly freeing for writers, uh, in terms of resetting the dial on, you know, the cheating Eleanor relationship or whatever it is. But what are the drawbacks of that? Like, what are the dangers of like, sort of, we could do anything. Is that like in itself kind of limiting in its own way? Yeah. Oh, it totally is. It's, there's many, there's many potential drawbacks or pitfalls or whatever you want to call it. I would say, Mm -hmm. um, the one that we're the most scared about is that if you just keep resetting everything over and over and over again without any forward momentum, the audience is first of all going to get bored, right? Because <laughs> they're like, How, why, did I, why did I watch all those episodes if it's just back to square one? So there ha- when you reset things, there has to be some, things have to change and there has to be some forward momentum and there have to be new developments that make, that keep the show interesting. Number two is the audience might start to feel like, well, why should I invest in whatever this new scenario is if I just know it's going to be reset, right? It's like, there's, it's, it's, you, you eventually, there's a sort of, I think of it as the M night Shyamalan problem a little bit where M night Shyamalan comes out of the gate with this incredible movie that has this unbelievable twist and it makes a billion dollars and everyone loses their mind and thinks like, Oh, this is the next great filmmaker who's going to be entertaining us for the next hundred years. 
And the problem became with his movies is like after two or three of them, you started just looking for the twist. You started just like waiting, like you weren't even in, you couldn't enjoy the, at least I couldn't, I'll speak for myself. I couldn't enjoy the films or just judge them on their own merits. I was like, I would watch the trailers and start to guess like, Oh, I get it. It's the village. Isn't really an old time, even like puritanical village. It's kind of, it's in the, it's in the future or whatever. Like you just, right. you know what I mean? You just like your brain starts like to start like predicting things. So, you know, the, the reset button is, is kind of fun. It's a fun toy because we, we've gotten to sort of like show who these people are and then radically change their circumstances. And there's a fun, dramatic irony where the audience is watching Chidi and Eleanor meet, quote unquote, meet for the first time, when in fact they've met a billion times. They've spent 300 years together. They've fallen in love and they've, you know, they've had sex and they've, they've been on adventures and they've done all these crazy things. And then you get to see Eleanor walk into his office and go, hi, are you Chidi? So there's a lot of fun to be had with it. And it's a fun storytelling device, but it's got a lot of potential drawbacks. And so we're constantly in the writer's room talking about like, all right, what, what are we, what trap are we falling into here? How can we reassure the audience that there's like, that this matters, that everything matters, that this is all additive, that we're not just wiping everything away and that none of this stuff, even though they don't have memories of it, how can we reassure people that, that everything that they've seen until now also has some kind of, some import or meaning for the show long term. Now that the action has moved to Earth, did you ever consider introducing the swearing back in, I don't know, with like bleeps or some, some other thing? Yeah, we did. Um, we did. And uh, it was like it was like too much of a bummer. I think mm-hmm. uh, ultimately like, cause I liked the, fi- I, I enjoyed, and I think the writers enjoyed the work around of the swearing filter. And I think if we just started swearing indiscriminately and bleeping it, it would like, it's like the bleeping is another kind of filter, right? Like it's yeah. like it just a filter that's, that's coming from like the FCC instead of from the logic of the shows. For anyone listening who hasn't listened to it already, you know, NBC is doing an official Good Place podcast hosted by Mark Evan Jackson. It's amazing. Mark ends each episode by asking people to say, like, you know, tell me something good, something that he says. I'm going to do my best Mark Evan Jackson impression right now and say, (laughs) pretty good. Yeah. And say, Michael Schur, tell me something medium. (laughs) Uh, oh man. Um, I'm a vegetarian. Uh, I've been a vegetarian for like five or six years now. I am not a perfect vegetarian. I cheat every once in a while. Um, usually out of like politeness or necessity where like I go to a barbecue and I forgot to tell the people that I'm a vegetarian and then they're making hot dogs. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I, it's too rude to say like, I I refuse to eat any of your food, (laughs) but I'm a vegetarian and being a vegetarian, even in a city like Los Angeles, there's a ton of good vegetarian and vegan restaurants it's pretty medium. Like the, the lunch that I have every day is best described as medium. It's like some kind of salad or some kind of like wrap that just has vegetables in it. And you can dress it up with like some yummy tahini sauce or whatever, like make it a little bit more flavorful. I put a ton of hot sauce on everything now, but basically being a vegetarian means your average lunch is real medium. <laughs> like it just is not, you're not going to ever have a lunch where you're like, that was amazing. So that's, yeah, being a, I mean, I, I still prefer it. I mean, I like the, the way that it makes me feel and I like the theoretical health benefits and I like the kind of vibe of being a vegetarian, even though talking about being a vegetarian, we did a joke, I think, even on the first episode of the good place where like, being a vegan is like worth a certain number of good place points, but like talking about being a vegan is like a million bad place. (laughs) People who (laughs) people like to brag about their veganism or vegetarianism are, can be kind of insufferable. So uh, it is, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a bummer to be a vegetarian. Um, And one of the things is a little bit of a bummer about it is that is lunch. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I look forward to all the hate mail you're about to receive from vegetarians uh, around the world. Bring it on, man. um, I I stand by my comments that (laughs) that vegetarian lunches are a bummer. (laughs) Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. Okay. So that is it for fall TV preview. Still watching. 
Richard, next week we're going to. I guess we're not literally going to Russia. I don't know the Romanov. Well, I think we. Yeah, you, I think we might. Okay, let's let's record from Russia. Let's find Edward Snowden and record from his kitchen in Russia. Forget Edward Snowden. <laughs> I'm going to find Dimitri from Anastasia, the hottest cartoon character of the '90s. Okay, I'm glad he qualified it with the, of the '90s because like he bumps like putting. I would have to pit him against Prince Philip from Sleeping Beauty, who's very hot, and then also like the fox and Robin Hood is complicated because now we're talking interspecies hotness, and I don't know what to do about that. You know who was real cute? Who? Was Jim Hawkins in Treasure Planet? Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, that was 2002, and also he's supposed to be 15 years old, which is kind of creepy. But like, um, he had a good haircut. That's just but, Gordon you know, Levitt, d- right? And then it is, yeah. Is yep. John Cusack. Uh, both of them don't they both have like sort of the floppy curtain hair, floppy curtain curtain uh-huh. hair? So All right, I, I, I have see. a type. I see your type. All right, I see your cartoon type. Um, okay, so uh, you know, once again, uh, Richard and I will be endeavoring to work lyrics from the uh, cartoon musical Anastasia into our entire run of covering the Romanoffs uh, for Amazon. The first two episodes of the Romanoffs drop next week we will be interviewing someone from the show and then doing our usual thing where we shamelessly objectify people and talk about deep themes at the same time uh richard until then where can people find your work i'll be well uh, they can find my work on vanityfair.com but i personally will be in a uh, like a, a recording studio trying to nail the richard marks harmony from at the beginning because you're going to sing the donna lewis part yeah. Next, at the top of next week's episode, right? Right, right, of course, of course, yeah, I got it. Uh, okay, good. Where, how about yourself? Where will you be? I will be just hanging out where I usually do, which is in the medium place, and um, <laughs> and <laughs> doing as much cocaine as I can. And, you know, or you can find me on Twitter, I wrote this, or all of our work over on VanityFair.com. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Dasvidanya. <laughs> Dasvidanya, Anya. Oh, my God. Good. Come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.